Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Friday, January 20th. Today is the 30th anniversary of the inauguration of Bill Clinton as President of the United States. It was the first time in 12 years that the country had a Democratic president. That same year, 1993, Rudy Giuliani was elected mayor of New York. It was the first time in 28 years the city had elected a Republican mayor. Why did America move left and the city move right? And how did those choices help give us the world and the issues we're living with today? Well, right now we begin a six-part series, today through next Friday, here in the 11 o'clock hour, about the year of Bill and Rudy and how 1993 did a lot to set up the world of 2023. We'll start with an excerpt from Bill Clinton's inaugural address. Born in 1946, he was one of the first baby boomers. Clinton and Donald Trump were born just two months apart. And coming off of 12 years of Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush, Clinton framed his ascent squarely in generational terms. Today, a generation raised in the shadows of the Cold War assumes new responsibilities in a world warmed by the sunshine of freedom, but threatened still by ancient hatreds and new plagues. Raised in unrivaled prosperity, we inherit an economy that is still the world's strongest, but is weakened by business failures, stagnant wages, increasing inequality, and deep divisions among our own people. When George Washington first took the oath I have just sworn to uphold, news traveled slowly across the land by horseback and across the ocean by boat. Now the sights and sounds of this ceremony are broadcast instantaneously to billions around the world. Communications and commerce are global. Investment is mobile. Technology is almost magical. And ambition for a better life is now universal. We earn our livelihood in America today in peaceful competition with people all across the earth. Profound and powerful forces are shaking and remaking our world. And the urgent question of our time is whether we can make change our friend and not our enemy. We can make change our friend and not our enemy. The question of our time. A minute and a half of Bill Clinton's inaugural address 30 years ago today, and such is the lofty language of inauguration speak, right? We can make change our friend and not our enemy. And as the internet was just being born, you heard him marvel at how technology is almost magical, no downsides yet. And he at least accepted in that quote that commerce had become global and investment had become mobile. That, of course, would become a defining feature of Clinton's presidency that we grapple with to this day. But he also listed some of the problems Americans had at that time that led many Americans to vote for him, but that made some others very wary of a young Democrat. Here's one more minute from that inaugural address. 
This new world has already enriched the lives of millions of Americans who are able to compete and win in it. But when most people are working harder for less, when others cannot work at all, when the cost of health care devastates families and threatens to bankrupt our enterprises, great and small, when the fear of crime robs law-abiding citizens of their freedom, and when millions of poor children cannot even imagine the lives we are calling them to lead, we have not made change our friend. We know we have to face hard truths and take strong steps, but we have not done so. Instead, we have drifted, and that drifting has eroded our resources, fractured our economy, and shaken our confidence. So he cited the democratic issues of poverty and wage stagnation and unemployment. There had been a deep recession that alienated people from Bush. A Clinton campaign mantra, mantra, if only behind the scenes, was it's the economy, stupid. We'll talk about that. But he also mentioned crime and his compromises with Republicans on how to address both crime and the economy are two of the biggest ways that the Bill and Rudy world of 1993 helped give us the world of 2023, the world of today. So let's talk about it. Joining us first for this series are two top journalists who covered the Clinton campaign back then and would have been watching that inaugural address 30 years ago today. Eleanor Clift, these days a columnist for the Daily Beast. She was a White House correspondent for Newsweek in the Carter and Reagan years, then covered the Clinton campaign and was named Deputy Washington Bureau Chief of Newsweek in 1992. She is also well-known as a panelist on the long-running political TV talk show The McLaughlin Group when it was on and has written books, including Selecting a President and Madam President, Shattering the Last Glass Ceiling. And David Marinus, these days associate editor at The Washington Post. He won a 1993 Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of the Clinton campaign and is author of the books First in His Class, a biography of Bill Clinton and The Clinton Enigma. He also wrote a book in 1996 subtly titled Tell Newt to Shut Up. And he's written other biographies of political and sports figures, including his recent one from last year, Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. Eleanor and David, thanks so much for coming on for this. Welcome back to WNYC. Glad to be with you. Thank you, Brian. Wonderful to be here. Eleanor, why was Bill Clinton elected? Why was the first George Bush a one-term president? Uh, Bill Clinton was elected because uh, there was a group called the Democratic Leadership Council, the DLC, which uh, appealed to Clinton's wonky side with developing lots of new ideas. The purpose was, though, to wrench the party back from what appeared to the voters as the far left and to bring the party back to uh, the center. And uh, Bill Clinton uh, campaigned on ending uh, welfare as as we know it. And also, um, he took time off the campaign trail to go back to Arkansas and preside over the execution of a, uh, of a prisoner, a man who uh, was so compromised uh, mentally that he asked if he could save part of his last meal uh, for later. Mm-hmm. Uh, Clinton was very defensive about that and said that the, uh, the, this, this person actually had 
had shot and killed, I think, a police officer, and then turned the gun on himself, which is what accounted for his disability. But uh, he felt that he was taking the right action in making him accountable for the initial uh, murder. So those were signals to the voters that this was a different kind of Democrat. Plus, he was immensely charismatic. And uh, the whole um, phrase that has followed him throughout his life is that he, he feels your pain. Uh, he could relate to the voters. And there was a fam- famous moment in the campaign uh, during one of the a town meeting where George H.W. Bush was glancing at his watch, kind of impatiently hoping it would soon be over. And Clinton is stepping forward to engage with a voter who had asked about deficits and and how 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 they mattered in her life. And the senior president uh, had no idea how to respond to that. And Clinton just you know stepped right into it and could relate mm-hmm. to voters. So I think it was it was both per- his personality and there was some significant signals that the the part this democratic party was going to be a little di- different than the one that had lost 49 states to Ronald Reagan. David, same question, anything to add or even disagree yeah, no, with? I think I think uh, Eleanor is right on. I think that the uh democratic leadership conference was really just a venue for Clinton, but that to understand him you have to go all the way back uh to the dawn of his political career. You know, he basically started um, in 1972, running George McGovern's campaign in Texas. And from then all the way through for the next 20 years, he really spent a lot of his time trying to figure out how the Democrats could get back into power. So, you know, he, he mastered the art of co-opting Republicans on many of their issues. And that, that led to the to his positions on crime, um, to, to the death penalty, um, to the sister soldier incident where he was, uh, you know, sort of taking advantage of, of some statements by a, a black woman rapper to, to make himself sound um, more uh, sort of conventional uh, about the changes in, in rap music. Um, in so many different ways, he, he, he manipulated, um, to some extent, um, the public in, in trying to make it look like he... He was um, something that that he really wasn't. Um, but on the other hand, he was never the leftist that people that the right wing portrayed him as either. Um, and that whole notion of of Clinton as a, a raging anti-war leftist was equally off base. He was just a master politician. And as Eleanor said, um, he, he had charisma. He he was he was a, a horse of a politician, unlike any that the people who worked for him had ridden before. Eleanor, in generational terms, given what you were both just describing about Bill Clinton as a new centrist Democrat at the time, here is the first baby boomer president who invokes generational change in his inaugural address. But even coming out of the baby boomer college student activist culture, he actually runs on less aggressive change than pre-boomer Democrats. Was that a defining moment for the generation in a way when those who were singing about revolution with the Jefferson airplane, you know, were now making accommodations for the sake of electability with big business and some conservative social concerns? Well, it was not just Bill Clinton. It was Al Gore, too. It was two baby boomers. It was (laughs) a whole generational change. And, you know, it was 
um, I, I've read more read about this than than have memories of it. But uh, after Dwight Eisenhower came Jack Kennedy, and it was like suddenly you know Washington and the whole country was in bright colors. And the same thing happened with Clinton. There were you know Hollywood celebrities, and it was a it was a wonderful few months, but it didn't last very long because. Uh, that first year, I, I, I think it was the first year, if I remember correctly, don't ask, don't tell. Um, the, he had promised on the campaign trail almost almost casually that uh, he would overturn the, the military ban against uh, uh, gay people. And, uh, boy, that turned into a very difficult thing to do and emerged some um, compromise legislation that almost seemed worse than what they started out with. Yeah, we won't you kick had, you out if yeah. you stay in the closet. Right. And and then also the, the, the crime bill. Um, yes, he was responding to the rising crime rates and the fact that people were afraid and, and he needed Washington had to do something. But he also, in that bill, had a lot of social uh, welfare spending money. And what, what I remember mostly was midnight basketball. They were going to keep gyms open at night in various neighborhoods so kids would have a place to go as opposed to just hang out on the streets. And the Republicans turned that, they called it midnight basketball. They made, they mocked it. So, I mean, he tr- he tried to, to accommodate sort of both sides. And, you know, in Arkansas, he had the moniker Slick Willie, which sounds like a really negative word. But I mean, he, he he grew up in that Arkansas culture where if you wanted to accomplish a progressive end, you had to dodge and weave and do all kinds of things in order to get there. And I think that's what he did in Washington as well. And sometimes it, it worked and sometimes it looked uh, too transactional and got people angry at him from both sides of the political spectrum. But again, I think David is right. He was a, he was a master politician. Well, let me go back, first of all, to sort of the baby boom generation. I mean, when you asked about whether his election represented sort of a transformation of that generation from yeah. the activism of the 60s, I think it did. I think it's been a sort of a, an arc ever since. And now you you know, it's it's sort of mind-boggling to me, who was a member of that generation, that that uh, it was the baby boomers who gave Donald Trump uh, his presidency. Uh, you know, so what a what a transformation that has been. Um, I'm also thinking about 1993 um, as sort of the dawn of a new age in a way that Clinton didn't really imagine yet, which was, uh, you know, social media hadn't come to the fore yet. But Rush Limbaugh was around, and although it wasn't necessarily a conspiracy, um, it was the beginnings of a vast right-wing movement um, to try to undo everything that that progressive uh, leaders were trying to do, and and that's only uh, increased uh, manifold every year since then. And it really was the dawn of that um, in the early Clinton years, and that's what he was walking into that didn't realize as part of, you know, that speech where he's talking about. Uh, the marvels of technology, um, as you pointed out, it also mm-hmm. led to a lot of those uh, ugly moments. And Clinton won that election with only 43% of the popular vote. That's because there was a third party candidate in that race, billionaire Ross Perot, who won no electoral votes, but did get about 19% of the popular vote by far the most of any third party candidate in the last century. I'm going to replay now 
what I'll call Ross Perot's 60 seconds of fame, the one minute of him speaking that everyone paying attention then remembers. This is from one of the televised presidential debates, Clinton and Bush and Perot. Ross Perot, the billionaire businessman, is the one sounding a warning against NAFTA, the possible free trade agreement with Mexico and Canada. If you're paying $12, $13, $14 an hour for factory workers, and you can move your factory south of the border, pay a dollar an hour for labor, hire a young 25, let's assume you've been in business for a long time, you've got a mature workforce. Pay a dollar an hour for your labor, have no health care, that's the most expensive single element in making a car, have no environmental controls, no pollution controls, and no retirement, and you don't care about anything but making money, there will be a giant sucking sound going south. So we, if, if the people send me to Washington, the first thing I'll do is study that 2,000-page agreement and make sure it's a two-way street. I, one last point here. I've called, I decided I was dumb and didn't understand it, so I called the who's who of the folks who've been around it. And I said, why won't everybody go south? They said, we'll be disruptive. I said, for how long? I finally got them up for 12 to 15 years. And I said, well, how does it stop being disruptive? And that is when their jobs come up from a dollar an hour to six dollars an hour and ours go down to six dollars an hour, then it's leveled again. But in the meantime, you've wrecked the country with these kinds of deals. David Perot had founded the company Electronic Data Systems. So why was it a multinational tech billionaire who opposed open borders for capital? <laughs> well, why was Ross Perot Ross Perot? I mean, um, you know, he was. Uh, it's funny how... The arc of history moves, but um, what he was saying then can help explain why Donald Trump was uh, uh, won Michigan, Ohio, and Wisconsin 30 years later, right? Hmm. Eleanor, does history know whether Perot took more votes from Clinton or from Bush? I'm sure uh, the late President Bush is positive that it was Ross Perot that cost him the presidency. Uh, but if you go state by state, uh, he d he didn't really affect the outcome, I'm told. Right. So uh, he he did prevent uh, Clinton from winning a, a majority. And when Clinton ran for re-election, he I think he fell short of a majority then as well. And so uh, you know that was a prize that really uh, eluded him. But uh, Perot had a huge impact on the Clinton. White House. And Clinton campaigned on a middle class tax cut. And, you know, I think he used the phrase the forgotten middle class, which became a staple mm. of, of Donald Trump's <laughs> 30 years later. So um, there and what happened to that middle class in that intervening 30 years does explain a lot about where we are in politics today. And, uh, you know, I think Joe Biden is trying to uh, rebuild that and recover some of the credibility for, for government and serving the people. But there's such a gap between legislation that's passed and before anybody sees any positive results. And the media, re we really don't do a very good job of explaining uh, what government is doing that's positive. We're all over the negative things, but the positive things we don't really pay much attention to. Mm -hmm. But the deficit became a big issue for Bill Clinton because of Ross Perot. Right. Uh, he, he put that on the map. That's right. And as a matter of fact, it was the major debate within the Clinton camp right as that inauguration was taking place. Um, there were already the deficit hawks within uh, his new administration who were winning the argument that they couldn't do the middle class tax cut because of the deficit. David, I was reading last night one of your articles from during the campaign that helped win you that Pulitzer 
called Clinton's approach to racial matters, conflicting impulses. I think you touched on it briefly before, um, but what were some of those conflicting impulses? Well, I think that um, when you look at the idealistic side of Bill Clinton, uh, historically it started with issues of race. Growing up in segregated Arkansas and trying to move the South past that um, horrible uh, segregated uh, existence into something new. And that's what he, he always maintained that idealism on race. Um, and, and thus, it conflicted too much with his ambition. Bill Clinton's entire career is a, is a you know, a sort of a hyperventilated clash between um, ambition and idealism. And there were certain points when ambition won. And that's why, as Eleanor said, he went back to Arkansas um, to oversee the the uh, death of, of a of a mentally impaired um, convict. Um, it's why he did the sister soldier dressing down. Um, it's why he he and Hillary turned against uh, one of their first appointment appointees, Alani Guineer, um, when she became racially controversial. Um, so there were various moments when when that clash uh, became just uh, overwhelming. And but I always have maintained that that the better side of Bill Clinton. Um, was his his idealism on issues of race. Hmm. Um, and it only accentuated those times when he turned against his own instincts because okay. his main desire was to win. So to wrap up part one of this six-part series on the year of Bill and Rudy, how 1993 helped give us the world of 2023, what would you say in a nutshell is how one biggest way or one overarching thought, David Marinus, of how the world of 1993, all the politics of Bill Clinton that we've been talking about and we'll start talking about Rudy on Monday, has given us the world of 2023? Well, as I said earlier, I think it really was the dawn of, of a new age in ways that Bill Clinton didn't really uh, realize at, in 1993 uh, in terms of the the rise of a divisive and really angry and and sometimes effective uh, right wing against him and against uh, democratic policy. Um, and I think overall with Bill Clinton, you know, that central question was always, was always for people who liked him, if only. If only he hadn't done certain things, he could have been a great president. And my philosophy about that has always been you can't separate the good from the bad in Bill Clinton. The mm. same forces that drove him um, to, to his successes yeah. also drove him in other ways. You couldn't knock him down. And, you know, he ran in uh, 1992 after uh, Democrat Michael Dukakis had been, you know, beaten up about the ACLU and the Pledge of Allegiance and, and Boston Harbor pollution, and the Democrats didn't effectively counterpunch. Clinton came onto the scene ready to instant response, rapid response. Hit back. If you don't hit back, the lies or the, the criticism, the attacks are going to stick. And, you know, he was impeached. And uh, he kept saying, I'm going to go back and do the work for the American people. And his polls went up. He was actually in the low 60s after the Republicans uh, impeached him. Uh, so I think the lesson for today, and I think we're seeing it play out with a Republican House now uh, 
saying that they're going to impeach various cabinet officials and maybe even the president himself, and you see a counterattack machine belatedly forming on the uh, on the Democratic side that is uh, a replica of what the Clinton people put in place when he was uh, facing all those investigations, Whitewater, which morphed into you know, several other investigations. So I think, you know, the, the lessons were learned under, under Clinton. you got to fight back. And I'm sorry uh, that that's uh, the dominant ethos. I, I wish it were bipartisanship instead, and I'm going to keep rooting for bipartisanship, especially to raise the debt ceiling because they could crash the world economy if they don't. Uh, but I think uh, Fight Club is more the, the atmosphere that we're in. Fight Club, the last words in this segment from Eleanor Cleft. And folks, there you have it, part one of this six-part series, which will continue every day next week on the year of Bill and Rudy, how 1993 helped to give us the world of 2023. For now, we thank Eleanor Cleft, these days a columnist for The Daily Beast, and David Marinus, associate editor of The Washington Post. And he's got a recent book, so I'm going to mention it. David is a master biographer of different kinds of people, and his latest is Path Lit by Lightning, the Life of Jim Thorpe. Thank you both so much much for joining us for this. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Have a great weekend. Talk to you Monday.